Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Pfizer is reducing its vaccination shipments to Canada. What does that mean for us? President-elect Joe Biden says the United States will cancel the Keystone Pipeline. What does that mean for Canada's energy sector? One of the most infamous producers of early rock and roll has died in prison. We talk about the life and times of Phil Spector. And Elvis is reborn during a pandemic as we reintroduce you to COVID Elvis. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. You can have so much fun with the balloon! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show! Here's Scott Thompson! (laughs) Oh man, he's not kidding either. A balloon. Come here, come here. Kurt, come here. Kurt, come here. So. Seriously, you're in gym class. We got to let you back because you got to get back there. So, what are you doing with the balloon in gym class? What do you do? Um, we have to take an object, and the balloon. No, the balloon is. So we take an object, and we find any object. It can be any object. Right. Usually, a a book works because right, it's nice and book. flat. And you just keep hitting the balloon up with your uh, designated book. <laughs> and how long do you have to do that? Um, that's just a warm-up. Oh, then it gets it tougher. It gets good. So, uh, <laughs> now you take the book and the balloon, and you hit the balloon against the wall. Back oh, and nice. forth. Oh, nice. Like a little handball game. Yeah, going. yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. You're breaking out in a sweat. <laughs> you better go put your shorts on. All right, have fun. Thanks, kid. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, that's the grade 8 gym class for uh, the Kurt man. Uh, well, he's learning online. New numbers in Ontario coming out today, 2,578 new cases, 815 of those uh, in the Toronto area, 507 in Peel. Obviously, those are the, still the uh, uh, the large hotspots uh, in the province, but we have seen a slight dip in the numbers. Again, don't try to put too much emphasis on that at this point as they are floating, uh, but let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy PhD graduate and Queen Elizabeth Scholar with McMaster University is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we're seeing a slight dip in the numbers here, Ahmad. Can we, can, how much faith can we put in that? Should we take this too seriously? Uh, how, how do we, how do we uh, justify these new numbers? Well, this is great news for everybody. I think that shows us that the lockdowns, the measures that were put into place and people following the sort of uh, guidelines that were, de- were put forward is actually paying dividends. We're seeing now that the numbers are decreasing and the hope is that it continues to decrease. I mean, numbers are one thing, Scott, but really the key emphasis here is to understand whether our hospitals are uh, back to being able to function under a, a better situation. So what we know currently is that there's still 1,571 patients in hospitals with COVID-19. And of those, 394 patients are being treated in ICU units and 303 are breathing with the assistance of a ventilator. So those are the numbers that we want to pay close attention to moving forward. And the lower they are, the better our health system is able to respond to COVID-19. 
Uh, we remember uh, before the holidays, we were all warned about this. Got to be careful. Got to practice the pro- uh, protocol over the holidays. Uh, we're going to see a holiday surge. Uh, January 18th now, uh, obviously in the last two weeks or, or so, or week or so, that is what we've been seeing. Is this 18 days out from New Year's? Is this a, a sign that, that we are or could be coming to the end of that holiday surge? Yeah, I think so. I think that we are seeing the benefits of putting the measures in place and people sticking to the rules. I mean, and the key here is to see if those numbers stay low uh, or drop a little bit over the next few days, because then it will show that the measures that have been put into place have happened. But like you rightly pointed out, Scott, we got to remind everybody that the, the war is not over, right? The fight against COVID-19 will continue. And I think Dr. Theresa Tam said something very telling the past few days, that the vaccine can only get us so far. So don't just bank on the vaccine being our way out of this. We must continue those interventions. And this is something we've been saying from day one, that you know the, the interventions that are put into place about social distancing, safe hand hygiene, wearing your face mask, have to continue until the foreseeable future, until the majority of the population is vaccinated. And obviously, prior to the weekend, we heard about the delay in the fact in the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, uh, Canada, of course, gets it out of the United, or sorry, out of uh, Europe, uh, Belgium, I believe. And uh, they have announced that uh, prior to the weekend that uh, due to expansion in their facilities there, they have to temporarily slow, temporarily slow down uh, production of the vaccine. Um, we understand that not quite the slowdown in Europe that we're experiencing or will be experiencing here, which I guess is understandable considering uh, where we are in relation to Europe and such. Uh, but your thoughts on that delay, uh, they say that at the end we'll, we'll still get them all, but the, uh, obviously the very beginning, it, it's going to be a little slower than what we anticipated. Your thoughts on that? Well, Scott, I think from a policy perspective, I'm really curious about the specific story. We don't seem to know exactly the details as to why Pfizer has decided to reduce the number of shipments to Canada, but yet resume the shipments to Europe. From a policy perspective, you're left wondering whether this is an effort by Pfizer company uh, around equity issues. And by that, I mean is that there is this rhetoric or narrative that Canada has secured more vaccine than it needs. And there are other parts of the world that are in dire need of the vaccine, that are demanding Pfizer to supply it and are not receiving it. So uh, Pfizer has put out a statement today uh, or the past few days about uh, with Europe saying that you know, part of the reason why it has decided to resume the regular supply of the vaccine to Europe as opposed to the other countries is out of equity. And they left it very general at that. And, and it, it leaves us policy experts to wonder that, you know, Pfizer is making the choice uh, to decide who gets the vaccine first. Wow, that's fascinating. But again, I, 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 just to clarify what you were saying, I guess Europe is going to, the delay will be two weeks. However, in Canada, we're looking at more, uh, more like a month. Although, again, none of that has been confirmed uh, at this point. So uh, if I'm understanding you correctly here, Ahmad, uh, what you're saying is because we've secured so much, they might be saying, you know what, you guys got enough. We got to worry about these people. Is that what yeah, you're saying? I mean, th- there's been no confirmed, uh, you know, uh, statements from them. And I don't think they would ever make that public or, or confirm. Yeah. Statement. But it is odd. I mean, it is true. This is, has been confirmed that Pfizer has agreed to resume COVID-19 vaccine shipments to the EU, the European, European Union, within two weeks. But there has been no change to Canada's status on when we're going to get more of the shipment. 
And so uh, if, the, if the, the original claim by Pfizer is that they're revamping their factory and building extension and, and supply, bigger ability to supply the vaccine, then that should have applied also equally to EU. It doesn't make sense why that would only apply to EU and not, not to us. And so that would make us think that they're, they're making a judgment call on who's going to get the vaccine shipments more regularly. Uh, there's lots of, of, of unanswered questions here, doctor, uh, um, you know, as well as uh, the, I believe that uh, the Pfizer uh, vaccination is actually being produced in Michigan, which you think about where ours comes from and the proximity to Michigan, although I'm sure you'd be having the same debates there because obviously uh, the United States has a situation as well. Uh, not so much, certainly not so much with supply, but certainly with uh, uh, distribution. What about the Moderna? Uh, vaccine how much uh, can it take up what we lose from pfizer well i think that's that i will say that's one of the incredible things that came out of the leadership within the government was that when they were able to secure vaccines scott they didn't just focus on pfizer which is in retrospect was actually a very brilliant thing to do so they they focus on if you recall back at the times when justin Trudeau, our prime minister was announcing that you know canada is aggressively trying to secure as many deals as possible with as many companies as possible that is precisely when we're seeing the benefit of doing that because when pfizer can't supply it in enough time moderna can step in and, and if not moderna we're hearing about reports about johnson and johnson company being able to uh, possibly getting approved in canada uh, shortly and so all those efforts really help address uh, the gap in any supply and to make sure that the government sticks to its plan to have everybody vaccinated by September. Do we know what the situation or the status is of the Moderna supply? I mean, do we have a lot of it? Do we have enough of it? Is it coming in in dribs and drabs like the like the Pfizer is? And is there any way that we know of to get more of that to make up for the Pfizer loss? Because, again, it's great to have the portfolio, but a lot of these, there's only two of them that have been approved at this point. Uh, you're talking about the Johnson & Johnson. They're talking about February or March. Uh, for that. So uh, obviously for the next 30, 60 days, we're going to be stuck with what we're stuck with. Can, uh, what is the supply of Moderna like? Do we know? Well, what we know right now is that there are no issues with the Moderna supply as far as we know. We haven't gotten as, as many shipments as Pfizer, obviously because Pfizer was part of our first supply distribution. And what we understand from Moderna and distribution plan for it, it's being reserved primarily for rural communities because it holds better with temperature and storage as opposed to Pfizer. Pfizer has to be stored at a certain temperature level, which makes mobility very much difficult, as opposed to Moderna that we can able to deploy it into remote areas because the temperature levels of where it can be stored is not as low as Pfizer needs to be. So as far as we know, we're only hearing concerns or issues around the Pfizer. We have not heard any concerns yet about Moderna. That doesn't mean that it might not happen, but it doesn't sound like it will for now. Um, you talked about uh, the vaccine and, and obviously uh, with rollout and such and, and supply, it's going to take a while for us to get uh, all vaccinated. We're talking about uh, September. Um, that being said, and, and obviously the, the message here is to keep up the protocols, keep up what you're doing, and, and let's try to keep these numbers uh, trending downward as opposed to uh, the other direction. That being said, uh, in regard to the vaccine, and obviously we don't know a lot here because it's brand new, uh, but there are people now that have received their second shot, whether it's healthcare workers or those that are actually in, in long-term care uh, of some sort. Um, and I've heard uh, information in regard to the vaccine that it although it will keep uh we know it keeps the person who's had the vaccine safe we still aren't sure if that person is capable of spreading the vaccine can you elaborate on that in any way 
Yeah, I mean, this people are raising questions about whether if you just received the first dose, are you uh, still likely to A, contract COVID-19, get COVID-19 from other people who have it, or be able to transmit it if you do have it? And the short answer is that we don't have conclusive science about it. What we do know from the producers, Pfizer specifically, is that by only receiving the first dose and delaying the second dose, you're only getting 50% coverage. And by that, I mean you only have 50% chance of you not getting COVID-19 if you were exposed to it. Uh, and I think that you rightly pointed out, Scott, that it is a new vaccine. We are learning a lot about how it works. It does not, however, I need to make it very clear to the public that according to the evidence so far, it is safe. And so we're not questioning the safety of the vaccine here. People are just wondering how long can it last for? How long can we delay the dose in between the first and the second dose? However, the safety so far has been proven. Otherwise, Canada would have never approved it. We were talking last week, doctor, about the debate about the second dose. This was prior to the uh, to the knowing of uh, of the Pfizer shortage or delay, rather. Uh, and, and there was lots of debate going on that Health Canada and Pfizer had said, you know what, we really want you to uh, keep the second dose for 21 days and then administer it. Uh, I think B.C., Alberta and Quebec said, no way, we're just flooding the whole uh, place with all of the vaccines, everything out of the fridge, and then hoping that we get the second vaccination in time. Boy, I guess we know the answer to that question now. Um, and now, as you mentioned, Ontario uh, extending uh, the second dose to 42 days if needed, simply because we just the, the supply has been cut in half. I mean, yeah, and this is exactly what the issue about supply. I mean, this is the part of the frustration that's happening is the provinces now are blaming the federal government for not securing enough of the vaccine or continuous supply of it. The provinces are taking it upon themselves to decide the duration of when they should administer the second vaccine. And then third interest is the pharmaceutical companies who are saying, don't mess with what we said. We said 21 yeah. days from those one to two, two or 28 days, depending whether it's Moderna or Pfizer. So, you know, you have three different viewpoints on this. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure there's one correct way of doing it. If it was up to me, uh, I would have stuck to what Pfizer or Moderna have stipulated, which is the 21 or 28 days. However, you know, that's in an ideal world and we don't live in an ideal world. Yeah, good point. I mean, is there any right answer here when you think about it? We probably won't know for a couple of years from now. Uh, that being said, as we're moving forward and uh, as it appears that uh, by by February or so, we're going to see uh, another shot uh, coming into uh, into the system with the Johnson & Johnson, what do you think life will be like in March or April? They say, obviously, this first quarter is going to be bad, but now we're seeing they're, they're uh, working with massive test sites. They're going to open one in Toronto uh, at the convention center there. So when this surge does come in, when we do get massive quantities of this stuff that we can uh, execute and, 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 and get it administered on uh, uh, rapidly. So what are your thoughts on where we are as far as that and getting ready for it uh, when it does arrive? Well, I'm hoping for us to have an outdoorsy, fun summer. <laughs> That's my hope. And that children yeah. have school. However, I think that there is still a subset of the population, Scott, that are not entirely on board with getting the vaccine. And the point I'm trying to make here is that to forecast what the future would look like our summer and spring season, we must look at what, how many people will actually take the vaccine. Remember, the vaccine is not mandated. We're not a country that's going to force everybody to take the vaccine. So the, the number of uptake of vaccination is going to really determine how our future would look like. You know, we need a good number of the population to actually develop herd immunity and to make sure there is mass protection. It won't eradicate COVID-19. COVID-19 is going to stay with us forever. 
Uh, it's going to be very unlikely that the, this virus will just disappear from, from civilization. It's not the case. The case here is just to build enough immunity in the population. So the one thing to look at as we will do phase two uh, distribution plans and vaccination plans and with these mass centers is that how many of our populations will get the vaccine in due time and how many people we still need to convince about the safety of the vaccine. It sounds like you're still a little concerned about hesitancy. Absolutely. I think that there's still a good number of people who are not entirely sold on the vaccine. And that's going to take a lot of effort. And that will continue to be the number one challenge. So we talk as much as we talk about distribution supply. Really, that's that's secondary to number one, which is hesitancy of the people. The reason why we're not hearing as much about people being hesitant is because you still don't have access to it. So you're not worried. People are just waiting. But once they have access to it, will they go and get vaccinated? That's it. There's another debate waiting for us in the weeks to come. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Uh, Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Initially, we were uh, calling Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, to talk about uh, General Motors and uh, their plan to invest in a manufacturing uh, plant in uh, Ontario in regard to electric vehicles, very similar to the Ford situation. However, obviously, the situation that has happened uh, with the uh, with the Keystone Pipeline has uh, trumped all the headlines, for lack of a better word uh getting uh, word out today that uh on the uh, schedule of uh of events for uh, uh, pr- uh president uh, biden elect elect president biden uh elect rather is uh, to kill the uh, keystone xl pipeline which of course uh has the prime minister upset so he says and certainly the premier of alberta upset and let's bring in dan mctagg president of canadians for affordable energy he's with us now dan how you doing hope you're doing well I'm well, yes, and uh, belated Happy New Year. Uh, doing very great this afternoon. Thanks, God. Back at you. Uh, surprised at where we are. Jason Kenney, the Alberta Premier, is uh, speaking now on this. Uh, your thoughts on what has happened with the uh, Keystone Pipeline? Perhaps not a surprise from the Biden side. It's pretty clear that they uh, have um, very much made a commitment throughout their campaign, even when he was a candidate, that they would uh, kill this. But what I think the Biden administration, and we'll have to wait to see what they have to say, uh, I guess, on the first day in which they assume office, which I assume would be with this Wednesday or Thursday, uh, we'd have to see really what is in uh, the plan, if it's to kill it all uh, outright. I think uh, TransCanada Energy took the position that it wasn't going to be fooled again. They saw this play before with uh, President Obama after seven, eight years. All of the you know I's dotted and all the T's crossed. Everything was looked after, uh, and at the end of the day, that that president, uh, in his dying days as president, killed the project. Of course, it was restored under President Trump, and I think the company took uh, significant legal measures to make sure that if it is cancelled, there would be consequences, direct consequences to the U.S. administration and the American people uh, in terms of uh, foregone investments, uh, which the Americans will have to pay for. That's likely what I think is happening here. Of course, the devil's in the details, but for Americans, uh, we can talk about how this is not a good news story, obviously, for Canada. We'll continue to strand our oil. We'll have to continue to increase the amount of rail activity, uh, which takes more and more crude dangerously over in the United States to supply a very hungry U.S. market that doesn't have Saudi Arabia or Venezuela to get them the kind of oil that Canada supplies. So one way or another, they're going to have to get it. But it does mean, Scott, that Americans are facing some pretty significant increases in the price of the pumps if uh, this project is killed. That's because Americans have, again, 
uh, chosen to, as part of their energy security over the past few years, intensify the purchase of Canadian products as opposed to trying to find you know cute and trendy ways to shut them down. So here we go again, one extreme to the other extreme. Where's the yep. happy medium here? Where's the common sense? Uh, is this set in stone? Because, you know, if, from reports that we're hearing now that uh, there wasn't really any chance to consult on any of this, uh, especially with it being in this document that said it's going to be done uh, pretty much immediately. So is this set in stone? Is there is there wiggle room here? Like they even talked about delaying the decision, but what will that do? Well, the president can make the decision, but he can be convinced the decision was a bad one, especially when TransCanada Energy is saying that uh, most of what's going to go to that pipeline will be based on renewables and will admit that uh, it will, will hit that all-important zero emissions target. In other words, they're going to find other ways to offset the potential uh, you know, increases in carbon emissions delivered by this oil. So it kind of perhaps puts a lie to the idea that Alberta oil is dirty, that Alberta oil and Albertan and Canadian oil hasn't uh, improved its game. i got to tell you, we've done a damn good job in this country. Our emissions are down by as much as 25% in the past 10 years, which means, unlike the Americans, we've actually started to get our act together. For the Americans, though, there is a question of practicality. It's impossible. When you consider where the big refineries are in the United States that produce almost all of the fuel the country needs, except for the west coast of uh, California, 75% of oil is produced in the U.S. Midwest and the U.S. Gulf Coast, which is where this oil was destined. Those refineries have made billion-dollar investments in reconfiguring to take heavier slates of oil. They can't get it from Mexico. They can't get it from Iran. They can't get it from Venezuela. Saudi Arabia is not selling one barrel of oil anymore to the United States. So Americans are going to start to push back on the administration and say, listen, you may want these things about zero emission and all these other wonderful things, which this pipeline will deliver. But you're uh, you're going to hurt us far more than you're going to hurt the Canadians, simply because the alternative will be simply sending it by rail, which is double the cost, and the Americans will have to pick up the tab, unless, of course, they want to walk to work. And I don't see the Americans doing that. I realize there's a lot of political controversy of a you know of, <laughs> of the centuries uh, with respect to the last uh, presidential election. But for the ordinary uh, Joe and Josephine out there in the United States. I think uh, practicality is going to weigh much heavier than the politics of the the green uh, bashers who uh, have to recognize there isn't a single thing that we do on an industrial basis anywhere in North America that doesn't involve a greater amount of fossil fuels, including those trendy EVs and solar panels and windmills we all like to talk about, most of which are manufactured in China. It's funny you should say that because there was a report today about how the tech industry can reduce its carbon footprint because of obviously the massive amounts of electricity it takes in order to uh, in order to yeah. keep our tech world running. And they were saying like they've even got numbers that you know if we just uh, dialed it back a bit and didn't use that real high speed stuff or that real high definition stuff, we could save a huge carbon footprint. So you know it's going to be interesting to see how other industries fare into this who are, you know, sucking an incredible amount of energy, but coming from a different source. I mean, uh, where does this all end up? Well, it's really a good point. And and many of us want to do the right thing. We want to be seen, more importantly, as doing the right thing. Or we, you know, financially, they could get uh, tutted, as they say, by uh, uh, the green commissars walking around saying you're not doing enough. But look, uh, the minerals required to make uh, you know, uh, our components. Uh, I note, uh, for instance, that uh, right now, 
some of the most important semiconductors used in all vehicles, in all those computers, coming from rare mineral, rare earth minerals and other products that have to be mined and have to be mined with fossil fuels. The world is looking at a potential shutdown, especially in the automotive sector. Nissan, Hyundai, GM are all facing a pretty grim future. We're looking at six months of shutdown. In fact, Nissan has already said that they can't produce much more of their you know, they're the signature cars because they need more semiconductors. So all this really means that if we're going to go down this idea that we can deindustrialize through because we have to decarbonize, then we might as well start to accept the fact that we may be approaching that point. And I can't make, uh, I don't want to be flippant about it, but do we really want to go back to the Stone Age? Because that's primarily what we're talking about here. I think we need to look at consumer choice and we have to look at technology and its ability to evolve within the laws of physics. Uh, within what is possible, you know, uh, but beyond that, I think we do untold damage to ourselves. That includes EVs. That includes willing to wanting to shut down an industry that is getting its act together. There's the oil and natural gas sector, and which is really at the core of not only our social programs but our elevated standard of living globally. You know, it's and and again, you said earlier, Canadians want to do the right thing here. Canadians are aware of this; they're conscious of it. You you hear you see this in their politics. The thing that amazes me in this discussion, and I think we've touched on this in the past, is, you know, you think about where we've come in the last 100, even 150 years. You think of some of the great uh, things that have happened over time that have changed our lives, whether it's electricity, uh, whether it's transportation, whether it's the fossil fuel industry, whether it's the Internet, whether it's technology. This is simply uh, society progressing learning how to do things better, learning how to do things more efficiently. You know, in the past, uh, progress hasn't cost us money. Progress hasn't taxed the hell out of us. And the reason for it is because private industry makes money off of this stuff when it's a great idea. So why are we paying for all of this? Why is the taxpayer paying for progress which eventually private industry will profit from and you know we had this discussion at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was going look uh we the consumption of of uh, oil is way down some even being stupid enough to saying this is the future no it's a pandemic it's all going to change once we go back but the point that i'm making here dan is that we've made great progress not because we were taxed up the yin yang not because we were told we couldn't drive our car but because technology Technology now allows us to do this from home. So we have solved a portion of this problem with technology, not by jacking gas tax through the roof. So again, I don't remember paying for the internet. I don't remember my ancestors paying for space travel or paying for electricity. Why are we paying for this? <laughs> because we allow it and we are told by those researchers and academics and uh, opinion leaders who are very well paid by by the way through our tax dollars that we have to do these things but it's a little bit of uh, call it economic masochism when you go down this road of saying we have to hit this target come hell or high water when the target itself is really going to lose a lot of those who support the idea of doing better look i think i'm all in favor of progress and progress does mean growth but the growth can be so-called sustainable as long as we recognize that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think every Canadian has to understand that the things that make us unique as a country and clean as a country are things that we should celebrate. I'm looking at a vehicle today, built in 2020, 2021, which uses 17 times less 
uh, in terms of emissions, NOx, SOx, and yes, even carbon dioxide emissions, if we consider those to be bad for the environment. What that really means is that without punitive taxes, the public has declared that they want to move in this direction. And they want to make it sure that where there is new technology that's available, that those technologies are employed. And I should point out that they're not done through distorting uh, subsidies uh, or creating a scenario where people who have uh, an efficient internal combustion engine, which has less carbon uh, footprint than most uh, electric vehicles, are not forced to abandon those vehicles and become impoverished in someone else's, uh, you know, academic, uh, on, you know, somewhere on a blackboard or the back of a napkin uh, image of what Canada should look like. And that's true of the world. Look, we can do all these wonderful things, but at the end of all of this, we have to recognize that countries like China, which this morning, according to a piece I just put out at my on uh, my Twitter, at uh, Gas Price Wizard, uh, is going to see China use more coal than it has at any time in the past, going back to 2015. So we can do all the right things we want here, but uh, the cost of deindustrializing, damaging our uh, mining sector, damaging our energy sector, hurting farmers, and driving food prices up, all in pursuit of trying to be trendy and uh, uh, line up with the Paris Climate Agreement, which gives us absolutely no credit for all the clean energy that we've produced over the past 50, 60 years. If we're prepared to do those things, then we're going to have to sacrifice and, and, and really give away uh, our vaunted status of living, uh, standard living, as well as our social programs, the things that make us unique and to make us affluent. I think we can save the planet without taxing the bejeebers out of everybody. Just me, though. Um, what, yeah. uh, what about the take Prime Minister's react? What's that? They need to take their time. And yeah. It will happen, but not overnight, and not based on some arbitrary bureaucratic deadline that uh, uh, some people are sitting back and waiting for, because they're going to do very well by it, including carbon credits, which is a real schmozzle. I mean, imagine making money on the clean, thin air. That's exactly what we're talking about, as if 2008 wasn't bad enough when we base it on, you know, the global recession based on synthetic mortgages and things like that. Let's really be practical about this, especially the time when we need to focus on how to get out of it. the pandemic economic crisis, uh, which is going to require those industries like manufacturing, oil and gas to get back on their feet very quickly. Right now, we've basically cut them off at the knees and it's going to hurt Canadians. Uh, the Prime Minister has certainly played both sides of this fence forever. Um, what, any idea what his reaction will be to this? What, what does he do next? Well, I mean, probably. Uh, <laughs> is he cheering out one side of his? Is he cheering out one yeah. side of his mouth and complaining out of the other? Yeah, I think he's going to poke the Americans with a feather or a wet noodle. I think he couldn't care less, and uh, he doesn't get votes in Alberta. Uh, but more importantly, I saw his mandate letters, uh, especially the ones that I found very disturbing to the Minister of Environment, which is to double down on what doesn't work and that's to increase taxes. Now, you know, some time ago, Scott, we pointed out that. The second carbon tax, the clean fuel standard, as well as the existing carbon tax, won't be rebated. It will probably drive out uh, $25 billion in economic investments. And that is even before Mr. Biden decides to shut, try to shut down the oil sector in Canada. It's, it's become uh, rather obvious that there is a disconnect between economic reality and what is, in fact, being promoted by this prime minister. And the public hasn't really gotten on top of this simply because they haven't quite felt it. Uh, I kind of sometimes wish Mr. Ford had uh, allowed the premier of this province, allowed the full weight of hydro prices to rise in this province because they would be double what they are today as they were double 10 years ago. Uh, instead, we're subsidizing to the tune of $6.5 billion a year our electricity rates. 
Canadians need to understand that when we go woke, there's a good chance we're going to wind up broke. Uh, all of these things are protecting the prime minister, but the reality is that uh, you know when we look at food prices going up year after year, 10 to 15 percent, farmers having to bear a 30 percent increase in the cost of drying grains. Uh, you know, energy sector jobs no longer being there, the country not providing and having any growth in revenue, we're likely to lead to a situation where the only people are going to get rich are those making electric vehicles and windmills uh, and, of course, uh, solar panels and all of them coming from our good friends in China. Um, General Motors, and the real, the original reason we, we scheduled you here, Dan, General oh. Motors and uh, Unifor announcing that they have a tentative deal to invest nearly uh, a billion bucks in an assembly plant in Ingersoll to manufacture commercial electric vans. You said somehow these two are related. Well, they are. Uh, and But what is missing in that announcement uh, that uh, uh, you quite rightly picked up on is what's in it for me? How much am I going to have to pay? Uh, to convince people that they have to uh, go to an electric vehicle. I think it's great that uh, jobs are being created, or I should say replaced. Uh, But I think at the end of all this, without some massive federal amount of money, which we won't know until Unifor ratifies the deal in Ingersoll, we won't know how much the taxpayer is on the hook for. Again, it should be pretty obvious to people that uh, grants, subsidies, uh, incentives like this, which come from taxpayers, uh, would normally be acceptable in the circumstance where we can see uh, significant benefit. But it looks like these jobs can only be sustained with massive tax bailouts. Uh, and there's no plan here, from what I understand, that the GM is going to pay that money back or is required to pay that money back, ditto for Ford and Oakville. So while electric vehicles are the in thing and they're trendy, uh, the reality is that they're far more damaging to the environment. For every Listen, for every pound of iron ore that's required in electric uh, uh, to make an electric battery requires 5,000 pounds of processing and 500,000 pounds of uh, disturbing of the earth to pull that stuff out of the ground. So I'm just not convinced that this is such a great idea. And uh, while the world is heading that way, China is miles ahead of us to play catch up. Uh, this time would probably require uh, that we accept a significant decline in our standard of living. Their labor laws are much weaker. Uh, people aren't paid as much in that part of the world. And uh, let's just not get started in terms of their environmental standard. All of those electric vehicles they're producing and batteries, which they control at least 80% of the world's batteries, by the way. Uh, so, so, so sorry, you said China is ahead of us in the battery technology? That's right. Battery yeah. production technology. GM is, uh, is going to get a lot of its batteries from uh, China. And uh, if not, parts of those batteries will be coming from China. In fact, the the minerals required to a large extent will be processed in China. But that's not to say that that can change down the road. But right now, China uh, controls a significant amount of the components, cathodes, anodes, things like that. Uh, Not even the Americans can compete with them. In fact, the uh, Tesla Nevada battery process, when they were looking at rare earth minerals, for which you cannot create an electronic battery, electric battery, Uh, the Tesla uh, division that was looking after rare earth mining in Nevada went bankrupt. So it looks like we're all we're going to put all our eggs in one Chinese basket. No wonder that they're laughing. They're out of this COVID uh, pandemic much quicker than we are. Apparently, I won't go down that issue just yet. Uh, And their economy is roaring because any new technologies that are being developed uh, in our part of the world can only be, be practically realized financially viable if it is uh, by importing really the brain, the hearts, and the guts from China. And that's what does concern me, and it should concern every person out there who's going to have to fork over several billion dollars 
just to say and wave the flag and say we're building electric vehicles that, uh, frankly speaking, may sound great, are not practical yet, and for all intents and purposes, for the price, no one wants or can afford. It's interesting because the uh, leader of the Green Party was on this morning uh, giving a, a, a news conference and talked about how even China was doing things to reduce their carbon footprint, unlike Canada. That comparison fair? That's, that's total horse pucky, and they know it. That China is laughing its way uh, to international conferences because they're given a free pass till 2030. The aim of China is to use all the dirty fuel it wants, increase its uh, its carbon output, its coal plant production, increase it, virtually double it over the next eight to nine years, while the rest of the world walks back and starts cutting back immediately, putting itself back to you know uh, the period of time of 2005. China is going to build out, and then in 2030, once it has this massive belching infrastructure, then start to cut back 1% or 2% here or there. It's a total sham. And when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his 383 delegates, which represents more than four or five of the biggest countries combined, showed up in Paris uh, to uh, sign this agreement, they uh, completely ignored the Chinese scheme, which was basically to give itself a massive pass while the rest of the world, including Canada, would have to beat itself up significantly and lose investments, lose economic momentum by being the international Boy Scouts, while China got a pass. And many other nations will get the same thing, too. That's not to point out, you know, that was a flawed and very dangerous piece of uh, agreement by which even Aaron O'Toole and the NDP and the Greens are all rearing to, to put into action. Uh, Bill C-12, it's called. It is really a plan designed by environmentalists, the most radical environmentalists, to ensure that the country will never see fossil fuel production again and that we will continue down this road of increasing the cost of energy and making life generally in Canada so unaffordable and not a very enviable place to live. Dan McTagg has been with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, talking about uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, Biden uh, saying that on his first day he will cancel it. Dan, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Be well. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me again, Scott. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating story behind Phil Spector. Phil Spector, a uh, huge producer in the 1960s, uh, actually a millionaire by the time he was 21, and uh, produced a, a pile of hits through the 1960s. And uh, and then career took, uh, well, he, he always kind of had a bizarre uh, life, but uh, then ends up being charged with murder and uh, spending his last days uh, incarcerated in jail. And now has passed away at the age of 81 in prison of natural causes. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing uh, History of New Music and, of course, uh, music journalist with us now. Alan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, we're, you know, day, week, what is this, week? Uh, it's week number 45, Alan. Yeah, I think I'm <laughs> week seven, actually. I haven't been at a radio station in close to a year. Yeah, so here, yeah. yeah. I actually drove by our radio station uh, last week because I had to go into the dentist because my tooth blew apart, and I needed a headphone cord. So they literally threw it to me out the front door, and that was it. Yeah. That's I'm yeah, not right. even sure my pass card works anymore. Well, mine doesn't. I guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, Phil Spector, man, what a uh, what a bizarre life this man led, and you know I found it fascinating. A millionaire by the age he was twenty, by the age of twenty one. Yeah, he was. Probably the first ever rock and roll auteur 
you know, this, this, this prodigy, this, this savant that was able to take music and turn it into gold for the masses, for the, for the teenage kids. And he starts in, in basically 1959 with a, a group called the Teddy Bears, and a song called No One Is To Love Them. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of other singles, he blew up in the early 1960s with, you know, Beth and the Crystals and the Ronettes and then uh, the Righteous Brothers and on and on and on. And, and this guy became the most famous producer in America for, for some time because everything he seemed to put out as a single uh, turned to gold. Now, he was not into albums. He did not like the concept of albums. He believed that the purest form of music was the seven-inch single. Uh, and he also did not like stereo. So what he would do hmm. is he created this thing that he called the wall of sound, and he would have dozens of musicians in the studio at, us at the same time. And after a couple of hours of, of working out all their parts, he would record this cacophony in this giant room and somehow squeeze it all down to a single channel. He did not like stereo. It was all in mono. And when it was all done, that music sounded so big coming out of the AM radio speaker and jukeboxes. And it, there was nothing that sounded that powerful at that time using that technology. Remember, he was using you know, single track, two track, three track, four track recorders. He had almost no modern technology. Everything had to be done in person, arranging the, the musicians uh, you know, around the studio and then liking them properly and then getting them to play at the proper volume and then mixing all that down into that one single channel. That's interesting about mixing it down into that one single channel because I thought this was all about layering and, and overdubbing and making it bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, he did do that, but what you would have to do is something called bouncing. So if you had a, let's say, a two-track machine, you would record everything on what you had on two tracks, and then you would bounce those tracks to another machine, which you leave them there, and then uh, what would happen is then you would play back those two first tracks and record another part on top using the second machine or the first machine. Right. And then you would do that over and over and over again. The Beatles did that a lot. And uh, George Martin became a real pro at, at this, this bouncing. But, you know, <laughs> George Martin and the Beatles never had to deal with 36 musicians in the studio at the same time. And Phil Spector used this, uh, this group called the Wrecking Crew, which contained, mm. believe it or not, Glenn Campbell. Uh, they were uh, the best of the best of the best of the studio sessions. Hal Blaine on drums, Carol Kay on bass, they were good, and they would later show up in, a, in a thousands of other recordings, including Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. And you know, the sound that he got was, was just so special, so big. And, of course, the songs themselves were very good. And he launched a bunch of careers. Uh, one of his backup singers was this woman named Cher. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, he used all these backup singers who were, uh, whose, whose parts were then um, co-opted uh, and released under different names, like the Crystals and the Ronettes. They, they were the same you know, group of, of, of yeah. backup singers, but they were released under different names. And when the, those groups showed up on TV, the backup singers were, would be watching TV going, wait a second, they're lip syncing to my voice. Hmm, man. Uh, um, the original Music Factory. Um, with the wall of sound, is it something in, in his feeling about stereo? Is 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 the wall of sound something only the, that only works in in the old mono type recordings? You'd think he would embrace stereo because that would give him so much more, uh, so much more reach and and so much more uh, uh, creativity on on what he could have done. 
Well, when he was making his records in the early and mid-60s, uh, mono was still the way to go, especially yeah. for pop music. A lot of studios were not equipped with, with proper multi-track recorders. It's not until you get to Phil Spector's work with the Beatles on the Let It Be album in 1969 that he had multi-track, like eight-track uh, recorders available. And uh, he continued to work that way through, I guess, the early part of the 70s until we get to the the last major thing I guess he did would be the Ramones album, End of the Century, End of the Century mm-hmm. in 1979. He did record some other bands after that. There was a Yoko Ono album, some co-productions, and then there was a, the last big full project he did was with a British band called Star Sailor in 2003. But he really went into um, uh, a reclusive phase of his career uh, starting really at about 1974, he got into a very bad car accident, which he he should have died. Uh, the only thing that kept him alive was the fact that a policeman bent over and found a weak pulse and called an ambulance. They thought he was hmm. done. And when they rushed, rushed him to the hospital, he had 300 stitches in the front of his face and 400 stitches in the back of his face. And that's when he started growing out his hair to, to cover, out, to cover hmm. up a, a lot of the scars. And that's where the wigs came from, from later as well. Um, one of the things that he did at that time was was to produce the Beatles' Let It Be album, which he then, uh, on his own, put strings and orchestras on some right, songs. Right. Paul McCartney hated that, just hated, you know, for example, Let It Be and uh, The Long and Winding Road, not supposed to have any strings on it whatsoever, but, the, you know, uh, Phil Spector did it on his own. However... As much as Paul McCartney hated what it had done, George Harrison and John Lennon loved it. So Lennon got him, around, uh, kept, kept him on on, uh, on staff to record a, a couple, three albums in the early part of the 70s, uh, including the Imagine album, including the rock and roll record. And uh, George Harrison got him in for All Things Must Pass and his Concert for Bangladesh album. And then the last thing he did with a Beatles project was in 1981, shortly after John Lennon died, uh, he did a, a solo album for, for Yoko Ono. Hmm. Did his sound just become outdated after a while? It did, uh, because with technology, you didn't need to have those skills behind the whole wall of sound. Sound, you could do yeah. that in, 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 in with with multi track recording and and you know studio effects and all the rest of it. Uh, and then the kind of songs that he was was into, you know, began to fade away. Uh, if you listen to Imagine, for example, you know that that one of the things that Phil Spector was really into was drenching songs and lots of reverb, and that went out of style. Hmm. You listen to a song like uh, you know Pirate of the People or you know uh, Instant Karma. I mean, yeah, you can hear it. Oh yeah, and that's that's yeah. the Phil Spector sound. And after that, you know, it, things became tighter. The uh, you know drums were mic'd more, much more uh, dryly and closely, and it just became he just was. You know, his style was went out of out of out of style, and he was a nut, which is another thing that yeah. you have to. You know, he 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 himself wasn't sure whether he was genius or insane, and uh, he was very difficult to work with. He he went into uh, a reclusive era where he lived in this place called the Pyrenees Castle, a mansion in Alhambra, California, and, and he didn't really do much. He just sat there collecting royalty checks, which were substantial. When he when he died, he had about fifty million dollars in fortune. Um, and then, you know, there was the stories about how he, uh, uh, abused people, how he was terrible to some people, you know, Darlene Love and, uh, Ronnie Spector were, were two people who spoke out against him. Um, and then there was the st- all the stories that, that deal with the Ramones album in the century where he basically held them hostage 
uh, until he got the album that he wanted to get out of them. And there was one night they were saying, you know, we're, we're a punk band. We, we don't do these big productions. We're, hmm. we're just going home. And the story is he pulls out a gun and says, you're not going anywhere. Wow. Do you see a movie here? Uh, there, were, there was a play called Four Chords and a Gun, which was written by the character that played Kripke <laughs> on The Big Bang Theory. And that's exactly what they talk about, that whole relationship between the Ramones and, and Phil Spector, about how he made Johnny Ramone play that opening chord in Rock and Roll High School a hundred times until they got the tone right, and how he would have a, a pistol on the mixing board all the time just in case anybody got out of, out of hand and he had to make a point. Um, again, you know, he was a bit... Not a bit. He, he was he was unhinged, and it all came to an end on February third, uh, two thousand three, when he brings Lana Clarkson home from from the restaurant, and she ends up dead with a gunshot wound to the head through the mouth. And uh, after a long well, one trial, which was a mistrial, and then another trial, which ended in conviction, he was sentenced to prison for nineteen years to life, and and that's where that's where he died. Hmm. Alan Cross has been with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. Uh, Phil Spector, famed Wall of Sound producer uh, that was eventually convicted of murder, dead at 81. Alan, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Always love it. Take care. Be well. You bet. See ya. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think we first came across uh, Cameron uh, on the Facebook pages way, way, way in the early stages of this uh, pandemic. Uh, so I don't know, maybe 40 weeks ago, we'll say something like that. And uh, it was just, you know, uh, to do something lighter, just a, a fascinating story about a, a guy who would entertain in in seniors' homes and such. And obviously the pandemic hits. What do you do now? Well, you take it on the road. And, uh, uh, well, I- I'll let Cameron tell the rest of the story. COVID Elvis, nice to have you here. Uh, how are things going in uh, in Graceland, we'll say? Well, uh, very well. And I can tell you, Scott, um, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm certainly happy uh, looking out the window here that I'm not out on the middle of the street or singing right now in what is a hailstorm. Oh, well, you know, that's another thing I guess you've had to put up with is the elements while doing this. How do you cope with the elements when you're standing out on the street shaking the hips? Well, on my birthday, we went and did a, a food drive over on Neighbor to Neighbor, and it was freezing rain, so I just popped up a bunch of umbrellas. Uh, you know, I had enough hairspray in my hair that it wouldn't fall flat. <laughs> and um, we just, we just, we, we sang in the rain, the snow. Uh, we've been hailed on, snowed on. Um, it, it's been a, it's been a pretty wild trip. So tell everybody how this all started, because I'm you know now I'm seeing you in the newspaper. I saw you on the CTV News the other night, which has uh, prompted this next call or this call that we're we're doing now. Uh, we've talked a couple of times over the course of this pandemic. Give remind everybody how this all started. Well, it just started out when a, a friend uh, reached out and asked if I could uh, sing for her mom's 80th birthday because they canceled their plans, and uh, from there it just. Um, from one thing to the next, I was out, you know, on the street and then started collecting food. And then we started doing basic human essential things. And then we started uh, putting together cinch bags and, um, you know, 32,000 pounds later. And here we are still at it. So uh, now way back when you would go into the homes just to entertain the odd time. Is that how you got this idea? Well, uh, for 15 years, uh, starting at 40 years old, uh, that was my full time gig. 
singing in long care term, retirement, mm. assisted living homes. And uh, people would book me from, from all over the place, from, you know, Burlington, Hamilton, Oakville, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge. I would go from home to home to home. Wow. And uh, they would hire me to sing uh, as Cameron, uh, not as Elvis. Um, that came much later, obviously, uh, during the pandemic. And uh, that was my gig for 15 years. And so you found yourself, like many, out of work as a result of this. Yes, unemployed as of March the 13th, 2019. Oh, man. Well, talk yeah. about uh, talk about turning this around. So um, so how did you get to the whole Elvis thing? Well, um, when she asked me, it was just to go sing as myself, and, and, and I had bought a used jumpsuit because I had entertained the idea that I was going to do this, uh, you know, Elvis thing and, and, right. and, you know, do that for the retirement homes. And I, I just called her up. I sent her a message, and I said, "Hey, how about I show up as Elvis?" And you know, I, I had done a, a a couple of shows in December for the retirement homes called the White Christmas, and I was just going to carry on and and offer that to the retirement homes as an extra thing because I also do a singing Santa thing for them, and it just goes on and on. So I thought, hey, why not add Elvis to the to the mix of things that I offered? So, are you surprised how this has taken off, especially with the whole COVID Elvis thing? Yeah, well, that's your fault, COVID Elvis. You know, I remember that, and I wasn't sure if that was if we coined that phrase during that interview or not. But I remember calling you COVID Elvis. Yeah, you said uh, we'll be we'll be back after the break with COVID Elvis, and then it was like I'm, I have COVID Elvis on the phone with me, and I thought, well, okay, well, that's what I'm gonna take that and, and run with it. So it's been COVID Elvis ever since. So um, thanks for that, Scott. Oh, anytime. Uh, so how often are you are you out there? How busy are you with COVID Elvis? Well, I can say we did 240 food drives in 10 months. Sorry, hit me with that again. You cut out. Um, I can tell you we did over 240 food drives in 10 months. Man, oh, man. So are you actually go- are you going from place to place, or do people actually request you to come? How do you, how, how do you plan these dates? Um, well, what happens is they reach out to me through all the social media. Um, you know, uh, we have a, an email address, um, the Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, uh, all kinds of different social media. People reach out and say, hey, my, my aunt is turning 80. Can you come sing here? And uh, and I have to tell you, since uh, the um, uh, Saturday night broadcast with the uh, CTV, we spent all day yesterday um answering calls and messages and text messages oh and by the way i have my uh better uh the the, the other half of the covid elvis team which is chantelle sitting beside me because the team there, there's two of us here hey chantelle well you can't be covid elvis alone can you no because i'll tell you there's a lot of food to haul and and and, and you know with the pandemic and everything we we don't have help like we don't have hmm. you know yeah. we we can't have volunteers or anything like that so so we we do everything ourselves so obviously, you know, you've 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 been nimble enough to to find the demand here and still and still uh, get to the people who want to hear you. Because, I mean, I remember even having you on the first time, having uh, seniors call up that had seen you perform 
long before the pandemic and were ranting and raving uh, about that. And, and obviously, that was your full-time gig before the pandemic. Now, yeah. with COVID Elvis, and obviously, you know, uh, you know things are, are difficult right now, uh, you know, for everyone. Um, are, what about the publicity this has given you? Uh, once this all ends and you can get back out doing the normal gigs, I mean, things should be pretty good. Well, I would, um, yeah, the normal gigs, sure, but um, so we're looking at, you know, 32,000 pounds last year, maybe, you know, not putting any limit on anything. How about 100,000 pounds next year or this year? Wow. And um, so having said that, we've had a lot of people say in the beginning of January, we were sitting around and there wasn't a whole lot to do. um, And we thought, you know, Chantel said to me, why don't we just go, you know, sing at some of the retirement homes? The weather's really nice. Well, you know, see if they wouldn't mind us just coming and singing a few songs in their driveway. Grace Villa here in Hamilton being hit really hard. A lot of people messaged us and said, hey, do you think you could do a little thing over at Grace Villa? And it was plus degrees weather in the first week of January. We thought, you know what, we're going to go out and do this for free. Not even, not even tell people what we're doing. Just give them a quick, uh, hey, we'd like to come by. And that's how that all came about. Unbelievable. Are you, you must be just be flabbergasted at how this has taken off. Um, yes, I'm flabbergasted. Chantel's like, well, she wasn't surprised because I put a lot into it. So she figured eventually, you know, it would come around and, and people would notice what you're doing. And, and really you know, they do. So, um, I'm not sure what else to say. Uh, how many suits do you have now? Pardon me? How many suits do you have now? Well, I had two used ones and I bought two. So now there you I go. have four. <laughs> Good for you. That's amazing. So if people want to get a hold of, if people want to book COVID Elvis, what do we do? Well, they can contact us at COVID Elvis, COVID Elvis at hotmail.com. And I'll just tell you real quickly. So we've had a lot of people, hey, can you come and sing for my aunt or can you come sing for my, my brother who's kind of bummed out down in Dundas or whatever the case may be. Um, I got a message yesterday, an email from a fella in Rome, Italy. Could I go sing for his father's birthday down at the Amica in uh, Stony Creek? And so um, a lot of people are looking at, oh, well, th- this is free. So we're like, well, we offered this the first week just to, you know, give back and such and such like that. But uh, I would love to to go out and sing for free every day, uh, you know, and facilitate. Yeah, no, we get it. COVID Elvis uh, is Cameron Michael Caton, and uh, just take a peek on Facebook. You'll find him and uh, go through the proper uh, proper, uh, proper channels. And uh, I guess Colonel Chant- uh, Chantel will book your gigs for you. <laughs> the Colonel, you got your own Colonel there. Uh, COVID Elvis, congratulations. Good luck. Uh, keep going. Keep going. Love to Thank see you. it. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and uh, reaching out. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.